as long as I'm in prison and not using, now I'm becoming sober-minded. But as long as I'm outside, I am in prison by using being an addict. Addiction puts you in prison, mentally, spiritually, and physically. Hello everyone, Shlam Alochon. Peter here and it's so good to be back on the Assyrian podcast to bring you episode 112 with Adnan Rashu. It was about a year ago when I first heard episode 70 featuring Dr. Ashurina Reem and Nicole Shamoon. The themes of that episode resonated with me. Addiction, pain, family, community, struggle. It pains me whenever I hear about someone in our community struggling with addiction of any kind. And from my understanding, it's not one size fits all. And addiction is not only limited to drugs or alcohol. Adnan was born in Baghdad, Iraq, and came to Chicago, Illinois at the age of 13. Growing up, Adnan experienced seasons of low self-esteem and shyness. He began self-medicating by drinking alcohol and experimenting with drugs. Over time, his drug use began to escalate until he found his drug of choice, crack cocaine. According to Adnan, the first time he used crack cocaine, he became immediately hooked. After 20 years of drug addiction, homelessness, and hardship, he turned his life around for good by the grace of God. I consider Adnan a close friend of mine. There's a difference in age, but there's wisdom in having older friends. It was fitting to sit down with Adnan to talk about his independence during the Independence Day weekend in Chicago. Him and I have a special surprise for you at the end, never before of its kind on the Assyrian Podcast. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. And now let's hear from Adnan. Good morning, Adnan. I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. Personally, it is a pleasure to have you on as a guest, and I'll give you the opportunity to introduce yourself, and we'll get into the conversation. Good morning, Peter. Thank you for having me. I am uh, honored to be here. My name is Adnan Rashu. I am a Syrian, originally from Iraq. In one sentence, who is Adnan? Adnan is right now is a humble person walking in faith. I'm an extrovert. I choose my friends wisely. Adnan, what's your earliest memory? Your first memory? You mean it could be from the past? Absolutely. And it could be a memory from when you were three years old, but you remember it so vividly that it has been ingrained in your thoughts and your mind. There's few of them, but one of them, it always stuck in my mind as a as a child, I remember um, my father would have people, his friends over or her relatives, and they would be drinking 
alcohol and, and smoking cigarettes. And this is in what city? This is in, uh, I guess, I mean, it, it was called Dora. Dora is uh, where Assyrians, it was an Assyrian town in Baghdad. As a child, I remember he would say, don't drink alcohol and don't smoke cigarettes. They're not good for you. And it just stuck with me all my life that why would he say that if he was doing it and all his friends were doing it? It always stayed in my mind. And I was like, well, why are they having so much fun? You know, they're laughing. And yet he told me, don't do it. It's not good for you. That I remember that. Obviously, you've thought about this for, you know, you, you recall this memory, but you still don't understand quite why he would tell you don't drink, don't smoke. In a way, I do, but what I'm trying to tell people is uh, about this is how how will you tell your child? I love my father, and, and you know he's not with us now. But my my question is, how would you tell someone not to do something, but yet they're doing it? Mm-hmm. So how will you convince someone uh, not to do it, but you're doing it? Yeah, tell me about your upbringing in in Baghdad. Certain things that I want to mention, and I don't know how important they will be, but Dora was almost 100% Assyrians. And those are, that are from there, you, they, will, they will agree with me that we didn't speak Arabic very well because we always used Assyrian at home. The only time we spoke Arabic was in school. You know, I, I left when I was 12. So at that age, it was all fun. And, and, but I remember when we were leaving... We left without telling anyone. Why was that? Because because if 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 the government knew, they would put um, a red flag. You can never leave. Most so, people that left, they never told anyone. Maybe they told their relatives, the close family, but not friends. Like we left without telling our friends. Your parents, when they left, was it because your father he didn't want to tell the government or relatives because he had an important position, or people there when they left? Baghdad, when they left Iraq during the regime, they, they couldn't tell anyone because of the there, there could have been a threat or a red flag, like you mentioned. Yeah, so you didn't have to have a, a, a position in the government to it was it was if you if they if the government found out you they would call it mana mana in Arabic means um, in English. I don't know how it means. Uh, I can't remember. I don't know how to translate it. Is it illegal? No, mana means uh, forbidden. Okay. I believe like you're forbidden to leave. Yeah. It's it's uh you'll, yeah. you'll get stuck there. What were some of the emotions that you were going through as you were leaving Baghdad? You know, at that age you 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 listen to your parents. To be honest, it, it was a little bit exciting. We were going to another country and we went to Jordan uh, because the the embassy, the American embassy was uh, in Jordan and we left around school time. So that was we were blessed that they didn't uh, return us in the checkpoints. There was many checkpoints that I remember. Uh, one of the checkpoints they stopped us. They asked my dad, "How are you, leave, you know, taking your 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 children out of it's school time?" And he had to say something like, "Well, one is dumb, the other one is dumber," you know, as a joke. Yeah. And they were laughing, and I remember that that he had to use that that excuse. Yeah, he's like, "Oh, one is dumb and." Uh, he used the words Dutcha de Bank. I don't know what it is. It's if it's not Assyrian or I don't know if it's Arabic, but yeah. they understood what he meant. Tell me about the journey after Jordan. So you you leave Baghdad 
You go to Amman, Jordan, where the American embassy is. Yes. And after that, what follows course after that? So we, we came here. We Here being? In the United States. So first we stayed two nights in Athens. And that was kind of fun. And it was the first time I tried uh, Greek coffee. It was delicious. Yeah. We stayed in a hotel. I think we were told that many Assyrians stayed in that hotel. At that time, refugees were coming to Greece. Do you recall the year? Uh, 1978. We came, I remember, as I remember, it was, we were here in the United States three days or two days before Christmas. So you land in Chicago at this... We landed in, in New York. New York. That's where they gave us the green cut right away because um, we went through the process. Sure. You know, my uncle was uh, an American citizen here. At that time, if your sibling uh, is, you know, married, you want to bring them in, the whole fa- family comes through that one person, through your sibling, you know, sibling, if you have an American citizen here. So he did all the paperwork. And when we came to New York, they gave us green cards right away. That's how we came. So it's through your uncle that your family was able to get into the United yes. States. Uh, yes, my uncle Alex, Alex Temu. So you go from New York, you get your green card, you land in Chicago, yes. and you're how old at this point? I believe I was 13 at that time, yeah. So tell me about how you acclimate to 13-year-old, a teenager, coming to Chicago. Mm. What is your experience during your teenage teenage years and young adult years here in Chicago? It was very interesting because we came from a hot area into <laughs> freezing area. I mean, we... As soon as we landed, next day my uncle went and got us uh, winter jackets. He's like, "These jackets will not—you'll not survive here." We yeah. were, we, you know, we had like thin uh, jackets. Uh, we were a little bit surprised because there was snow. What was difficult is not speaking the language, meaning English. Uh, we didn't speak a word of uh, English. That was difficult because at that age, they—I guess—they did a test and they decided to put me in eighth grade. It was very hard, although I was thankful that there was Assyrian kids there in the school. It was Tremble School I started with, but it was difficult not understanding what they're talking about. You know, the teacher, the students. Yeah. It was, it was, it was difficult at, at first in trying to blend in and find new friends and all that. And the culture, the, you know, it was all different where, where I come from. Trumbull School is in what neighborhood in Chicago? I guess they would call it in the city in Campagiluaya. Which is which Andersonville? Is Andersonville. Andersonville. Yes, okay. yes. At the time, this was a enclave for Assyrians. A lot of Assyrians were living in Oh my goodness, yes, yeah. yes, it was. Tell me about your, and one of the main reasons I brought you on here is to bring awareness to our community. Hmm. I want you to begin to talk about your struggle, mm. how you were acquainted with addiction, mm. with drugs, and and tell the listeners or explain to the listeners that process, because I don't think it's an overnight process, but you can highlight yeah. that much better. I am very thankful every time that I have an opportunity, and I have done this before. Uh, I have given my stories to various churches, uh, various uh, youth programs. You know, I, I want to just... Uh, bring something up, many people will tell me, why are you sharing, you know, this is not a good, you're not telling good things about yourself. And I want to tell the listeners, how will someone learn if I don't share my story? I do it out of humbleness because God is in my story. 
and I want to give glory to him. Now, growing up, I had weakness. And my weakness was I was shy. I had low self-esteem and I didn't like myself. When I started going to high school, we would, uh, they would do Assyrian parties uh, from school. The Assyrian uh, club would throw parties on weekends. I don't know. I, I don't remember if it was every weekend or once a month. This is at Sen High School. This is at Sen High School where it was a melting pot. All nationalities, but everybody had a club. We had an Assyrian club. It was a lot of fun. But at that time, I started sneaking uh, alcohol or I would drink before I go because I would be shy. Alcohol would, would uh, take my shyness away. What it would do is put a mask. You know what I'm saying? I would like hide behind it. And I noticed that it would help me, right? It would loosen things up. Yes. Yeah, make yes. things interesting. Yes, uh, you know, and... Uh, so you would drink at home beforehand. You well, not at it. home, but before I go there. Not at home, because my parents wouldn't have allowed it, yeah. right? But I would... At that time, you know, Assyrians look older than their, their, their actual age. I would go to a... At that time, there was not many... You know, they didn't card. But I would, I would grow a beard... And I would go in and ask for alcohol. They didn't say, oh, show me ID or, you know, like, I, I got it. What would you ask for? Uh, usually, like, whiskey, um, a small bottle, uh, a pint or whatever. And I would just drink it straight and, and go in. And this is by yourself. You yeah. buy the alcohol, you drink it yourself, and then you go to the party. Yeah, and then I remember, I don't know if I'm going to mention this, but... Uh, we would throw it at social club on Damon and Foster at that time. At the Assyrian social club? Yeah, and club? then we, we were supposed to serve pop only and water. Soda. But, yeah, but behind me, and guess who was the bartender? <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> so I looked behind me and there's alcohol. Now, I'm not supposed to serve it, but I was drinking and actually serving some of my friends. Coke and, uh, you know, mix... That was hilarious, man. <laughs> so, so it starts with alcohol. It starts with alcohol. So this low self-esteem yeah. and the shyness, this is something that you experienced as a child? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess... And it stayed with you over time? <clears throat> over, Yeah, it stayed with me for a long time, and, and I just could, couldn't uh, um, get rid of it. At what point yes. were you introduced to drugs? What was that process like? Well, the first time I used uh, marijuana, which is surprisingly legal now, I started with marijuana. If I can also tell you, I have an addictive personality. What is that? Anything I do, I will do it to extreme. And I'm not the only one. Many people are like that. But the problem was, I got into something that's not good for me. Like if I was actually into studying and got into, you know, I, I have addictive personality, I wish I would have... Got into studying or or something productive. Applied your you know, personality yeah. to school, your addictive personality. Yes, yes. Now, uh, I was introduced to marijuana and gradually started meeting wrong people, wrong places. When I played football in, in, in school in Sen, I broke my ankle. And I want to tell you about a lot of things about myself. When I broke my ankle, I was very active. I was into sports you know, work, lifting weight. When I broke my ankle, they said, you can't play for a year. I said, I have to do something. So I picked up music. And uh, I asked for a saxophone. The teacher says, that we only have flute, trombone, or tuba? I go, man, let me just get a flute. 
I fell in love with it. Talking about addictive personality, I started playing the, the instrument. What did you love about it? It was it was peaceful. It was plus I wanted also to be liked, you know, like people like musicians, right? Even though I was shy, but I would when I played, I didn't I wasn't shy when I played. I hid behind the instrument. So I started practicing a lot and I became good at it. But after high school, I actually wanted my 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 dream was to be a professional flute player. I don't want to say uh, my parents weren't supportive. You know, it's it, I gave them a headache. I practiced a lot at home. Yeah. I could I want to say they could have done better job by saying, "Hey, you know, don't stick with only music. Make it as a hobby or something." I think I think it's not only my parents, but many parents, they don't sit down with their children or their kids and communicate because the parents are the foundation. They're the ones the kids look up to. I never had, I don't remember having a, a conversation with my parents. And and I, I'm not blaming them. It's just they were busy. You have to understand, we, we're trying to get our lives here together to build something. You know, my dad was working. My mom was, you know, was, she worked a little bit, but she was also taking care of us, you know, making sure we were fed and all that. But I wanted to be a professional musician and I went to college for a year but then my dad said I need you to work and I started working then I started going out and I kind of put my dream on the on the hold and I started going out in bars nightclubs and I started drinking and little by little I started meeting people in that kind of a world you know doing experimenting with other drugs um now at that time at a young age, you don't think, oh, I'm going to get hooked on it because I'm I'm thinking, oh, I'm a strong guy. I can control things, right? You're 20, 21 at this yeah, point. Yeah, early, okay. early, yeah. 19, 20, you know. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm not going to get addicted. I'm in control. What happens is when you, when you continue doing these things, all of a sudden from weekends or once a month becomes once, twice a month and then once a uh, or on weekends, you become a weekend alcoholic drug addict. And then the more you go out, the more you, especially wrong people, wrong places, wrong time. Little by little, I started experimenting with drugs. One thing led to another. What drugs exactly? I have done from, from by the way, alcohol is a drug. I think uh, you might have heard that before. Just because it's legal, it doesn't mean it's good for you. From alcohol, went to marijuana, marijuana to, I've tried mushrooms, I've tried uh, acid. I mean, you name it, I've tried it. I've tried cocaine. But my drug of choice, when I, when I tried it, which was crack cocaine, the study have shown three out of four people that use it first time, they get hooked. And that's a big percentage. When you, when you say crack cocaine, what exactly is crack cocaine? It's cocaine that has been purified. You can use a test tube, like a chemist, uh, chemical lab that they use. You can use a spoon or whatever you can with baking soda and water. What it does is it gets rid of all the cut if it's mixed with something and it leaves the heart of the cocaine. It will be like oily, mm -hmm. the oil of it. And then that will get hard. And then that you would put it in the pipe and smoke it. Now that, comparing cocaine itself, when you snort, and this one you smoke, 
Crack cocaine is you smoke it. Uh, snorting cocaine is a different high. The crack cocaine, it's about, I want to say, 100 times stronger than snoring cocaine. It hits you hard. It makes you higher. And it just numbs you. As, as I have explained it before, when you smoke crack cocaine, it's like you just went to the moon in seconds. But at the same time, when you when your high comes on, you you get dropped that fast. So what happens then, you chase the first high when you did it. It's I don't know if you heard this before. One is too many, a million is not enough. So you keep chasing the first time that you took it. Um, because it'll never be that. It will never be it'll that. It'll never reach that pinnacle. Yeah. As you're making your way through a series of drugs. Yes. At what age approximately do you do you meet crack cocaine? I think I was probably 21, 22. And I did it. I was introduced by a co-worker that uh, introduced it to me. He says, hey, have you tried this? Actually, at that time, it was called freebasing. They gave it a, a cool name. Do you yeah. remember your first tie? Uh, of crack? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like as if Talk it was, about that. Well, the first time um, I went with this guy, co-worker, and he started putting it together. He had a test tube. He, has a, he had a torch, baking soda, water. Uh, we went and got uh, some grain alcohol, cotton, you know, those scissors that have like clips, um, these special pipes, glass pipes mm-hmm. with screens and all that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a process, yeah. right? We went and got, uh, we pitched in and we got us uh, an eight ball, which is uh, a lot. And then we we, stat- we we hung out in a garage, you know, with chairs. And it was like furnished, if you will. Yeah. And uh, the first time he gave me the hit, I took it. I looked at the ground, the ground moved. And I was like, wow, this is the one. This is what I've been waiting for. This is the high. And I got hooked on the first time I used and I started doing it every weekend with him. We would get paid and boom, we go and pitch in and go get high. What happens is with, with addiction, once you know what is capable of, you will always find an excuse to use. What I mean by that is when you're happy, you're going to use. When you're sad, you're going to use. You know, when someone dies, you're going to use. Uh, when you're full of food, you're going to use. So yeah. you're always, oh, this is a, a great time to celebrate. But again, in the beginning, I don't know the results, what is going to happen. Because I'm in my mind, of course, I've, I'm fooling myself, saying I'll never get hooked. I can, oh, I'm in control, right? But I wasn't. And later on, it affected my life. What happened after you, you're introduced to crack cocaine mm-hmm. and then you become... Can I use the word immediately addicted? Yes. You become immediately addicted. What, where does life take you as you have this new vice in your life? What does the new vice do to you? Yeah. How do you manage it? If it's even manageable. I could. So here's the thing. Um, before, I, before we go there, I want to go back a little bit. So when I, started, um, when, I got in, when I started smoking, I was buying weed or marijuana from a coworker at Klein Tools and I would pay him weekly for a bag. And then remember I said, I got, I started going to bars 
And then I noticed there's a high, what is it, high on demand? Uh, people are, they want it. That's so a high demand for marijuana? Yeah, marijuana, everything, all yeah. kinds of drugs. But I noticed, I go, why am I paying for it? The idea came to me and says, why don't I sell it? Hmm. So I started selling it. And I started meeting big drug dealers that would sell pounds. In Chicago. In Chicago. And, uh, you know, remember I told you I'm an outgoing, uh, you know, I like, I socialized. I wanted to, I, I wanted to be popular, mm-hmm. you know. So I started selling it. The guy I was buying from, he started buying from me. Wow. You know, so because I was getting better product and I started making, so I'm like, why should I pay for it? Let me sell it so I can say, so I don't have to pay for it. I'll make some money. And I'll get high for free. Yeah. And then when I got introduced to crack, I was doing everything, making all, you know, selling marijuana, selling whatever I could so I can make enough money so I can go buy crack, crack okay. or cocaine so to, to get high. So all my focus was to get high on that. And I was doing everything. I mean, I was smoking pot, drinking and all that. Yeah. Did your parents begin to notice? Friends, family? So remember, at, at that early age, you know, you're still strong. You're, you're, it doesn't show. You're eating. You're still eating. Yeah. Your body is still healthy uh, in some sense, right? They didn't. I, I kept it from them because I would come late and go to bed and go to sleep. And in the morning, they wouldn't notice. But someone told them, a couple of people told them, hey, your son is, they didn't believe it. Because, you know, they never seen it, right? And they're like, oh, no, my son is great. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I mean... Were you ever high in front of your parents? I was, but I, you know, I I tried, you know, to control it. I would just talk very short and go go, uh, away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not stay there for a long time. I got to go. Or or I got to go to bed or, you know, yeah. By way of addiction, Mm -hmm. when did you reach... Your lowest, and how did you get to your lowest point? I could, I, I, I should add. Usually, something dramatic has to happen in your life that you decide. Okay, especially when a loved one approaches you. So when I got married, when I met my wife, she knew I was doing drugs, but again, I was supposedly in control. When we got married, and I had my first child. Uh, she got tired of it. So she gave me the ultimatum. She says, either you go to rehab or we're no longer, we're done. So I didn't want to lose that. Um, so I went, I decided to go to rehab for 14 days. I stayed clean for a while, for a long time, actually. Well, what do you define as long time? Five years. Because what I had done is I did it by my own. What I mean is I went to the rehab. I didn't do meetings. I just came out and started continuing my life. Yeah. I kind of like uh, said, okay, I, I can do this. I don't have to go to meetings, 90-90 and all that. But uh, I think it was a mistake. And and also, I want to men- mention this because I think it's important that although I was Christian, but I didn't have God in my life. So I did it on my own. I said, well, I'm going to work and take care of my family, which I did uh, for five years. When we moved to Colorado, 
we started having marital problems. And uh, why did you? Why did you and your wife and your, or your family move to Colorado? Well, she was from there originally. She was. She took me there to show it to see if I like it, and I liked it. I loved it. It was, you know, mountains and beautiful, beautiful state. You know, she wanted to move there, and I said, okay, well, let's go. You know, I did. We moved, but we started having marital problems, and I started going back to drugs slowly with alcohol, going to bars, drinking, meeting wrong people. The same cycle, man. That vicious cycle. Alcohol, marijuana. I, I actually did different drugs. They, they had crank, which is, I don't know, and then speed or whatever. So you started getting, in Colorado, you started picking up. Picking up where I left off, yes. And you fall back into the web of addiction? Yes. So what are the nitty-gritty? What's the nitty-gritty of addiction? At what lengths do you go to when you have an addiction to... Oh, my goodness. I've done... I've stole. I've deceived, lied, robbed people, actually. Grabbed someone and, and took their money. A complete stranger on the street. Yes. Addiction is not a joke. Addiction will lead you to... It's crazy. It's You'll do insane stuff things that you would never do as a sober person it, it you go beyond uh, capability of a, of a sober mind you you won't do it as a sober person mm-hmm. unless you're insane I mean, yeah people do things that are they're not uh, chemically balanced right yeah i've done i've done many many bad things because of for my addiction yeah now over the 20 years i was an addict I have overdosed three times. Two times I remember. The first time I was so high that I went to bed and while I was sleeping, all of a sudden I woke up and I couldn't breathe. For a second I laid there trying to breathe, trying to grasp a breath. And all of a sudden I made my hand into a fist and started pounding my chest repeatedly until I was able to take a deep breath (gasps) and then I was able to go to the bathroom and wash my face and I was like what has happened and I realized that I used so much drugs that I was intoxicated heavily that my heart gave up Well, did that stop me? No, that was the early ages while I was young. And I was like, I'm still strong. I can continue. I was deep in it, bound by chains in this addiction. Now, the second time that I overdosed, I remember we were in the basement of a building. I had my cousin with me. Now... This time around, we had so much drugs that I wanted to chase the first time that I took the hit. Because what happens is every time you get high, the first time, you you get so high. But when you come down, you try to chase that same feeling that you had, you hit it the first time and you never succeed. So what happens here, you keep chasing it. And that's why the term in the rehab 
or in the addiction rehabilitation, they say one is too many and a thousand is never enough. We were in a basement and we were preparing and we were getting high. And I asked them, I said, let me get a, a big piece. And I was already tweaking and, and uh, heartbeat was pumping and I was already high, but I wanted to just take it to the next level. Well, that's what happened was I put the first hit and I started smoking it. And I remember blowing the smoke. It was like a big cloud. And that's what I remember. All of a sudden I woke up and there were ambulance there. There was cops there. And as soon as I woke up and they, they, they were came in and, and saw me and they're like, Oh, there it is. Another overdose. When they left, he told me, he goes, you were almost swallowing your tongue. I had to open it with a lighter. Your jaw was shut and pretty much I was gone into seizure. Uh, but when I woke up, I, I, I didn't feel it. I didn't feel like what I went through. I was pretty much gonna die and thank God he was there. It's funny. The next thing I said, can I get another hit? Now talk about insanity. I don't think I prefaced this for the listeners, but you and I were introduced perhaps 10 or so years ago. And so mm. I, there are some stories that I know about you. I know mm. some of your backstory. Mm. Explain to me your, this, the point in your life, the period in your life when you experienced homelessness. Well, when I went through a divorce, which was the worst time of my life. How many years were you married? 12 years. When I was ordered to be able to see my kids, it would be under supervision of the government. In the state of Colorado? Yes, yes. And every time I, I would see them, I would have to do a drug test. Prior to seeing them? Yes. And that didn't work. And, and you know, I want to talk about this, even though it hurts. But, and I'm going to tell you, addiction, because of my addiction, I lost everything. And most important, I lost my kids. That's, that's, that is the difficult time of my life when I lost them. And it was, even now I think about it, but, you know, I don't like to go backwards. Um, but it does, it does hurt me. But I thank God that uh, I know that God is with me. And, and, uh, and that's the only way I'm going forward. What do you mean by you lost your kids? Well, I... I when we when when I was ordered to go through the process, I I couldn't. I kept on using drugs. The process of of you have to see sobriety have, or seeing you your have kids. to see you have to do a drug test before you see your kids, yeah. and it'll be under supervision. You know, someone will be there, a stranger. So I I didn't like that, and and I just I just kept on doing drugs, and I just lost in touch. You know, lost touch with them and. And moved. I became homeless in Colorado. Tell us about that. So it was uh, the first time I became homeless, and man, wow, what a, what a difficult time. So you you do you don't have a place to stay. You don't, I don't. have an apartment. A I studio, don't. I, I was actually um, sleeping in drug drug homes. You know, people that were using and you were using as well. I was using as well, and I would sleeping in cars. Falling asleep on the bench. Tell me about the drug homes. I mean, that's pretty nitty gritty, no? Well, drug homes is a person that uh, 
that's either retired or collecting government assistance, and uh, they turn their home because they would run out of money. So they they would bring a drug dealer or drug addicts to use to to use their their home or their apartment, and in return you have to give them their cut, you know, give them some to to be able to stay there. Hmm. And man, I have seen some ugly things. So. Anyway, uh, that's what it is. Oh. So you're homeless in Colorado. Yes. Sleeping in your car, drug homes. Yes. Do you stay in Colorado homeless or how do you make your journey back to Chicago? Because so, you're no longer with your wife, your kids yeah. are out of the picture. Mm. I still had a car. Um, I was sleeping in a car, using it uh, to transport, you know, to get high in it, bring people. It helped me. But one time I was desperate. And I, I loaned it to a drug dealer, but he was supposed to return it a few hours. And he never did. And he kept on driving it. And they pounded, impounded my car. And how am I going to get my car? I don't have money to, to, to get it back. And I lost the car. And that's when it got harder because now I have no place to stay. I mean, that was like a house for me. I was sleeping in. I started sleeping on benches and, or, you know, drug, drug homes and all that. What was your life like during the day? I mean, uh, here's the thing. when Crack will make you stay up for days. And I'm not giving myself credit, but what I was, uh, I've always been a middleman, meaning I would look for people that I, they want to buy. I would connect with drug dealers, with users, and I would get my own cut. So I would get high all day long and, and try to get some of this. And then I would actually hold on to, to some stuff to be able to sell it and to keep continue doing it. Yeah. But uh, it was very, very difficult because everybody is trying to get you, meaning to burn you or, or you know, to get something out of you. Why? Well, because everybody wants, to, you know, you know, they you would get burned. Like you, they would give you fake stuff or take your money and not come back. You know, not you won't get your. So it was. So it, people, so the, the dealers and the addicts are just trying to burn each other. Yeah, no, it's okay. a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's an ongoing thing. Um, How? Where is? Your, I mean, I've gotten robbed too. Also, I've robbed people too. I mean, you know, that's the name of the game. Being an Assyrian, because we're so community oriented. Yeah. We have a home base, not a geographical home base, I could say, but your parents' home. Yeah. Or your grandmother's home usually acts as that home base. Yeah. And at this point in your life, you're homeless. What are you thinking about your home base? Uh, and I want to presume it's in Chicago because your parents yes. were there. Yeah. What are you thinking at that time about, why don't I just go back to Chicago? You know, I don't want to call them and say, hey, I'm homeless. And it's... They thought you were still married. No, no. They knew I went through divorce. They knew all that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you don't know unless you tell someone. So I didn't tell them, you know, I'm homeless um, until it's interesting because I remember this. I think 9-11 happened. And then and I was like, man, it's going to be hard here because, you know, I'm being from the Middle East. And, I, man, I shouldn't hang out here. And that's when I called my sister. I said, what can you do? And she sent me a ticket. And I'm grateful that I did that because I left. I came here and... That's when I, 
it got worse and worse. How did it get worse? I well, mean, you cut, you're you're coming home to your. Well, now I'm I'm more I'm really away from my kids. Rightly so, my ex put a restraining order on me. While you were in Chicago. While I was in Colorado. Okay. Even when I came, so it's it's funny because she has a a permanent restraining order. I don't know if somehow she got it. I'm not even supposed to call her even now. But you know, it's it's. I'm in a different state. It's not going to matter. But, And I'm not here to talk about whose fault it was. I'm, we're not going to get into that. That's not important. But what's important is addiction, right? When I came to Chicago back, of course, my parents and my sister, they started telling me, you ruined your life. You lost your kids and this and that. Um, that added to my depression. And of course, I know how to get rid of that is to use drugs to uh, numb myself. And I started doing really heavy drugs. Like I took, I did as much as I can, whatever I can get hold of. And I started actually, now in, in, in Chicago, I know a lot of people. A lot of the drug dealers were Assyrian and they knew me and I knew them. And I started hustling, if you will. And uh, I got into a lot of stuff, uh, you know, I did, I don't know. Some things I'm not going to mention because I don't think they're, they're proper. Uh, I got into everything that I can just so I can get my addiction uh, going. When you when you talk about getting into everything, essentially trying to make money to feed your addiction, is yes. that what you mean? Yes. So yeah. you tried a lot of means to yeah. make money that you're not proud of. Right. What do most people not understand about addiction from your perspective? Well, people that don't have addictive personality or they've never got into it because they were in a maybe in a safe environment, right? And I'm going to tell you, you know, something just came to my mind and I want to mention it. It is very important from childhood to take your kids to church to get them involved first of all in the Assyrian language or wherever your language is get them hooked get them get them connected with your church through bible studies Assyrian language why because in church it's safe they're going to meet other people. They're going to have the foundation. They're going to have the word of God. They're going to know how to pray. They know when they're down, they'll go to God. I didn't have that. And uh, I think that's important. The upbringing, right? As the saying goes, you are what you eat, right? Yeah. And there's another one. Show me your friends and I'll tell you what kind of person you are, right? And I'm not blaming my parents. I'm not saying anything. Like that. I'm just saying, bring your kids up in a productive environment. Um, Is it fair to say to to the parents out there, build a strong foundation for your children? Yeah. However way that they see fit, yeah. like build a strong foundation. Yeah, I think one of the problems is, is when the both parents are working, they don't know where their kids are going. But if you start them with, with, with the upbringing, upbringing, childhood, going to church and growing up in the church... Even if they uh, fall off for a while, but they're going to have a, 
a strong foundation. Now it's not guaranteed, mm-hmm. but it's uh, there's a big chance. It's it's looking better for them to be brought up in a God fearing, to be obedient, because you know where they're going. The, the issue I want to talk about is when both parents are working. Who's watching the kids mm-hmm. when they're teenagers? Yeah, it's important that to now. I'm not telling teaching parents what to do, but I think it's important to know who your kids' friends are, to meet them, meet their parents, you know, have communication, know where they're at. And I'm not saying put a a, a vice on them to know where they're at. Yeah. You know, twenty four seven. Yeah, a device, but to communicate with them, to be friends with them. Not just, oh, my kid is great because we're great. They're going to be great. Yeah. No, it's not guaranteed. So to open communication. Yeah. I still want to pose the question again to you. Yes. What do most people not understand about addiction? That it's there and that it could happen to anyone. It could be your child. It could be your brother, your sister. Actually, I knew old people were using drugs. And when we say addiction, or let's say... Any addiction. Any addiction. Not just drugs. Any addiction. It could be gambling. It could be adultery, right? It could be uh, playing games on your uh, uh, um, whatever. You know, you're stuck all day playing games. Your eyes are on the monitor and that's it. You want to play games. You want to... Addicted to money. Addicted to... So, is it fair to say whatever you do a lot of it, I think that becomes an addiction, Whatever binds you into a cycle, I suppose. I don't, I, yeah. I can't define addiction. I'm not yeah. equipped to. But from me knowing your backstory yeah. and consulting with a number of individuals that know you, mm. they let me know. They told me that you went to prison. You spent time in prison. Yes. So I want you to tell the listeners your experience, what led you, why you were in prison, and your time yeah. in prison. Well, you know, this system works like this. When you have, you keep going to county jail many times. Because of crimes committed. Of crimes, uh, you know, even the misdemeanors. Later on, they're going to count them on you. You know, the prosecutor said, Your Honor, you know, this guy's been you know, in and out of the county. I mean, he's not listening. He's not doing. 2000, 2004, it was the first time going to prison. Although it was five months, but five months, it's a lot. And it was because... I had stolen from someone while he was sleeping in the car, and they. What up- did you steal? Just whatever he you had. Get he your had hands he, on. No, he had a a, a gold uh, chain with with a name on it. Yeah. Uh, while he was sleeping, he had his window open. I reached and they upgraded it to I don't know uh, invasion. They call it an invasion of an automobile, like how you do invasion of a home. They said invasion of an automobile, so they didn't put me in prison but the, what they did is they put me they said plead guilty and we'll put you on probation and you have to see a probation officer well i was doing good now it doesn't mean i wasn't using drugs i was still using drugs but i was seeing the probation officer i don't know once a month or so and of course i'm telling her the things she wants to hear right <laughs> you know so i can yeah. get, get away with it went by it went like 13 13 months i was you know, abiding by the rules, right? Not meaning I was clean. No, I was still using. I believe I got uh, stopped again. I was, they caught me with drugs, I believe. 
And you got pulled over by the yeah, police yeah. and they find So drugs when I went you. to the judge, he says, oh my goodness, you know, you're back. It was the same judge. Yeah. Because you go back to the same judge. Mm-hmm. It has given you that. He says, well, now you got to go to rehab. I went to rehab for 50 days. Um, and I want to I wanna also mention that I've been through rehabs and institutions and everything. And then jail. And when I went to rehab for 50 days, I went through it, came out. I got busted again. So now the judge is like, come on, man, this is not right. What He's did like, you get busted for? I, I don't remember. Okay. But it's, it, it, it was, everything is, has to do with drugs. Uh-huh. Then he said, well, now you give me no choice. By the way, the judge was a very nice judge. I still remember his name, Judge Patterson. He was very nice, an African-American. He says, I will grant you this. Since you've been through 13 months of probation, you've done well, I'm going to minus that from your sentence. So he gave me four years. I'm supposed to do two years, half of the sentence, but he took 13 months off. And then six months good time, I only did five months. Hmm. So I got blessed again. And why am I saying blessed? Because I believe that even though I was in that life, that... Although God, you know, God is always there. It's, we are the ones, well, I'm going to say I was the one that was not close to God. Because God is everywhere. And he's waiting for us or for me to come to him. Somehow, some way. But when does he come into someone's life is when you hit rock bottom. So going to prison was your rock bottom. It was. Tell me about your time there. So I, I did first time in prison. And it wasn't the last time. Went to prison. When, when, when an addict goes to a prison, and I'm going to explain a little bit about that because it's important. When an addict, and whatever addiction, right? When an addict goes to prison, he becomes free. And you're going to be like, what do you mean? <laughs> well, as long as I'm in prison and not using, now I'm becoming sober-minded. But as long as I'm outside, I am in prison by using being an addict. Addiction puts you in prison mentally, spiritually, and physically. But when I was in prison, I didn't mind it. Because prison, what prison does, it could be good for someone and it could be bad for someone. You can learn from it. I, I started getting used to structure, getting up early. If you get up at four in the morning, you get breakfast. If you don't, breakfast is done. You're done. You got to wait till 11. So I would wake up, eat breakfast, take a nap, and then start walking in the morning or reading scripture and so on and so forth, um, working out and all that. I started reading this scripture. Not so much at, in 2004, but when I went 2010 in prison, I started reading the scripture. What led you back to prison again in 2010? Well, when I came out, so throughout the years, by the way, I want to bring something up. I've been been an addict. I was an addict over 20-something years, back and forth, going through rehabs, um, jails, prison, uh, substituting one drug for another or one thing for another. But I would always go back to my drug of choice mm. because 
what happens is the dopamine reminds you of the taste and the feeling. So I was stuck in a vicious circle. Yeah. I would go back to it. But the second time uh, I went 2010 and I went through back, back and forth all these years, rehabs and all that. I've been to rehabs, I don't know, I can't remember, maybe five times. And I have burnt so many bridges, man, with friends. But then in prison, 2010, I was tired of being sick and tired. I'm at age uh, 45 and still an addict. 45 years old. Wow. 20-something years, man. Half of my life almost. At that point. At that point. So, second time I went in, I was sick and tired being sick and tired. And then I started reading the scripture. I started reading the scripture in Stateville, where I was there 15 days, 24-7 lockdown. I still remember they would give us a, a cubic soap, a small soap. Once a week, we would shower. And that was the only time you we went out. And we walked... They would let us out once, I don't even, I don't, it wasn't even once a day, every two, three days, they would let you out in a small area for 45 minutes and go back. It was 24-7 lockdown, 15 days. I would have went crazy, but I asked the guard, can I get a Bible? And I started reading the Bible. And that's where it started. Went to prison. Did uh, I did three months Cook County, three months in prison. I just kept on reading. And what, what I found in it is was uh, hope, peace, and second chance. I told myself, when I get out this time, I'm done. Oh, humble carpenter, down on your hands and When I came out, 2011, guess what date? April 1st. Chab <laughs> Nisan, right? Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm out on, on the 1st. And everybody's like, it's Chab Nisan. Now, with all the respect, I didn't care. I mean, yeah. I just came out. Of, right? I'm like, so? And they're like, everybody's going on Western. I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, yeah, you're just out of prison. You're yeah, trying to get yeah. your life back together. Yeah, I'm trying to, you know. So at this point, you get out of prison, April 1st, 2011. Yes. Is Adnan an addict? Technically, yes. Right? Okay. It doesn't mean I'm using, but I'm still an addict, right? Yeah. I was so afraid to go outside, especially at night. 
because I knew so many people mm-hmm. and they knew me. I was so afraid that I'm going to bump into somebody and they're going to say, come on, man, let's go. And I'm talking about, I don't know if I'm, I'm going to say it, even women, right? They'd be like, hey, let's go or this. You did not want to put yourself into I didn't any wanna, situation. No, I didn't want to be dragged into that life, okay. right? So a few months went by. As soon as it would get dark, I didn't, I didn't go out so much. I, I was always home. I would actually exercise around my block. I would walk and jog and do everything around my block. I didn't want to go anywhere. Um, but I was like, come on, this is, this, does, this, is, this cannot go mm-hmm. on like this. Me, be, me being afraid. Secluded. Yeah, and I got I to gotta move on, right? I, I, I didn't know what to do, but I can tell you this. I heard a voice. Not hear it like, hey, but within, right? Mm-hmm. Like somebody spoke to me and say, and said, why don't you pray? As soon as I heard the voice, I went on my knees and I started conversating with God. I said, I'm tired of this life and I've never asked you before. Please take this fear and this addiction from me. I don't want to live like this. I want a new life. I'm tired. A couple of weeks went by. I went to the store to buy. I remember it was olive oil. I wanted to buy olive oil. How interesting, right? Yeah. What were you going to do with it? I, I don't remember. I think yeah. for salad or something, yeah. you know? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm all about food, right? Absolutely. I, 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 I'm, good, I'm a good cook. Consumption and, and cooking. Yeah. yeah. But mostly cooking. You're a great cook. <laughs> So, on the way there, I saw a guy that I used to get high with. Now, I saw something different in him. He was outwardly clean. Why do I say that? Because this guy was homeless in Chicago. And he was 10 times worse than I was. But I saw something in him. I was like, hold on a second. This guy is looking different. I stopped and, and started talking to him and first thing he said to me was i i heard you came out of prison are you still using i said no i go i've been clean like i don't know eight nine months six i don't remember Mm -hmm. and i I, obviously i i responded what about you he responded he said something that i was like i was like so surprised he goes i've been clean four years and i go how like i was like what do you mean you know he goes man i i surrendered my life to christ and he started talking about his story he plays drums for the church and all that he's telling while he's telling me his story i'm remembering my prayer and i'm like i'm asking myself and asking god is this a sign from you, you're sending this guy? Obviously, right? And then he asked me this question. He goes, do you still have your flute that we used to pawn together to get money for drugs? I go, I don't have the same one. Yeah, I lost it to a pawn shop, but I do have another one. And he goes, are you willing to come and play for the church? Wow. And he goes, 
uh, you know, I'm going to talk to the, the church. And, and I go, just like that? He goes, just like that. He goes, I'll tell you what, give me your number. Tomorrow I'll pick you up for a prayer meeting. Now, I got to tell you, knowing this guy, his background, because I knew him, I'm still in that mode of, because he was known to do something and he wanted something back. So yeah. I'm still in that mode of, what does he want out of it? What's the catch? <laughs> What's, the what catch? Do I have to, What's the reciprocation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then again, I said, you know what? It's not going to hurt to give him my number. Because I don't want to share my numbers with addicts, right? Yeah. But then he said, he says he said he was clean and all that. I gave it to him. But I went home on my way. I forgot totally about it. Next day, I get a call and I forgot about this. He goes, I'm outside your door. And I go, man, you weren't kidding, right? I remember that he said, so I went to, I went on that day with him and I saw another man there while we were waiting in the parking lot. He, I knew him from the neighborhood. He knew me. As soon as he saw me in the parking lot, he had a smile ear to ear. He was so happy to see me, right? Yeah. And he approached me. He approached us. He goes, he goes, I know. What are you doing here? Like, huh. this is not your place, man. <laughs> right? Wow. You're in the wrong place, right? Church. I, I'm saying that, right? I'm saying that. Yeah. You know, I'm not thinking that. I'm not saying that he's thinking that. Yeah, but yeah. I'm, I'm trying to put it out there, like how, how he, a person. From would, his perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I go, man, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I need help, you know. Yeah. In the parking lot. It was me, him, and the guy that brought me there. The drummer. I, the the drug, yeah. the ex, you know, the drummer. He goes, let's pray. And it was a simple prayer. It was a repenting prayer, right? And I just repeated what he said. God, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for me. I repent of all the things I have done. I am willing to serve you. And I, I acknowledge you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for shedding your blood for my sake. So it was a nice prayer. Mm -hmm. Nothing happened, right? We went into the church. We did a prayer meeting. It was great. But what was amazing that happened when I got home, as soon as I got into my room, I felt a supernatural feeling. I've never felt in my life like something was taken. I was like... As of like how you take a deep breath, you know, mm. I felt it, you know, and I still remember it. And from when that, you walked into your room, my room, especially was it room. like a weight that was lifted off your shoulders? Yes, or? yes. It was like, uh, by faith, I believe the chains of addiction were broken, mm. the bondage. And I was a, given a new spirit, a new beginning. My friends will tell you that the F word was in every sentence that I spoke. From that day on, I was aware of what I would say. I stopped using curse words. I stopped you watching, you know, movies that are not good. Mm -hmm. um, I I just started serving the Lord. I started going to church. I started going to other churches, and they started asking me to give my story. Yeah, you know the 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 transformation, and without and your transformation was without. I mean, you went through a series of recovery programs. Yes, yes. But your recovery was through, through the Lord. Spiritual, spiritual recovery. Yes. yes. 
The concept of one day at a time in terms of the struggle and overcoming your struggle. Tell me about your mantra or philosophy of one day at a time. Peter, before I, 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 I start, can you tell me what mantra means? You're using big words. Go mantra easy. Mantra is, is <laughs> kind of like your statement, your philosophy. Like this is, this is the, the line that I live by. One day at a time. Yeah. I got you. Um, so going back what you said, the programs... The programs helped a little. What do I mean by that? The line, one day at a time, right? Having, bring God into your life. The programs helped a little. But for me, I needed something that was supernatural. Something mm-hmm. that is not seen. Something, Peter, and I want to tell the listeners, the spiritual life is so important to me. Because I believe in my spirit has to be stronger than my flesh. And how do I make my spirit stronger? Is by praying on a daily basis, one day at a time. Uh, having a personal relationship with Christ. Reading the word of God. And applying it in my life. One day at a time. One day at a time. Mm. One day at a time, it's like a it's like a brick and a, after a brick. How do you build a house? You gotta you gotta start with it one brick at a time. Yeah. Right. One day at a time, and also choosing your friends. You know, there's another term in the, in the rehab world is people, places, and things. You have to change the people you used to hang out with, the places you used to hang out, and the things you used to do. You have to change all those three. Having God in my life is the best thing that I've done in my life, that God has done in my life. I've been clean since I remember the day of the day that I did, that prayed and I felt that it was August 10th, two days after my birthday, 2011. Ever since then, I haven't touched no alcohol, nothing, clean and sober. And I give all glory and and credit to God. Let me ask you this. Yes. For the listeners out there who may be struggling with addiction or may know someone who is struggling addiction, Mm. but are not necessarily religious, Mm. in tune with God, the Mm. way that your life was able to be transformed. Mm. What what would you say to them who don't subscribe to any and Christianity or religious beliefs? How do they go through? How how would someone like that and try to go through the steps of breaking their chains of addiction? Well, I, I don't want to. I don't know how to say this, but if you're gonna do it without God, my question is: Have you tried it? Have you? Because I wasn't in tune with God. I had nothing to do with God. Yeah. I didn't know the concept of God dying on the cross for my sins. Understanding the personal relationship that I have to have with. I had, I, I wasn't, I didn't grow up in church. Uh, God wasn't spoken in my family. I went to church on Christmas, Easter, or when someone died or when someone got married. Or baptism. That was it. You can do the program I don't know if I, I don't want to say you can do it without God. I can't say that. I can tell you this. 
if you put your faith and trust, you got nothing to lose but gain. If your sobriety is so important, or that person, why not in sobriety, you have to do everything possible because your sobriety comes first. If I have to change the people I have, you know, I, I need to change, do it. Places, the things. Actually, in the program, it, you know, a recovery program, they tell you to have a God in your life. I just don't like the idea or the concept of God can be anything. It could be a doorknob. I don't know about that. I'm not sure. Why is it important to break the stigma of talking about addiction? Uh, what do you mean by stigma? You know, in our community, we don't like to talk about the nitty gritty. We don't like to talk. We don't like to talk about addiction or some taboo topics. Why is it important to break the stigma of talking about addiction? So, in other words, for me, it's important to talk about it. What is the important to you? What is the importance? Why is it important? Because you cannot go to a doctor and say, "Look, I have an addiction." You know, he'll be like, "Okay, here's medication." He he, he he's never done it you know as the saying goes you know i'll translate it uh, ask the one that used don't ask the doctor right because the doctor never used what are you translating it from from uh i think arabic can you say it it's uh that is or or in a serum would be bakr otile jurba la bakr doctor be surat doctor asya asya Talking about it, it does two things. It helps, it helps me to remember where I've been through. And also, there's a saying in the program, it says, to keep what you have, you must share it. What does that mean, to keep what you have? Meaning the sobriety. Talking about some sobriety, it gives me also a good feeling that I, I'm sitting here that it is also possible, like I was one of the worst people out there, that if I could do it, you could do it. I'm giving you encouragement mm -hmm. to start that one day at a time. It's so important. And what's important is, and many people will not do it, is to confess that they are an addict. That's the first step of recovery. Once you confess it, say, I'm an addict, I need help, the healing starts, the recovery starts. If you say, I'm not an addict, and you never confess it, you will never, you'll never stop. So to summarize the last, our last few minutes, you break through recovery, you find the Lord, you're grounded in Christianity, I could say, and you, be, you begin to attend church and you're active. And you're sharing your story, your testimony with the community. Now, what about professionally? Are you working at this point? How are you, even if you can, able to find a job as a convicted felon and addict, former addict? I'd like to mention something before I get into that. Throughout my stories that, you know, I was going to churches. You know, I've, I've been to Detroit and I gave my, my story. It's a small number, but I have helped a couple of people. And what I mean by that is... Uh, when I gave my story in Detroit, a woman approached me and said, I, she has a friend that her son is an addict. And uh, she says, is it okay if I give you my number? 
I give you his your number to her so she can reach out. I said, absolutely. And I was so excited. And she called me in a week. And I started communicating with this woman. And it took three years of me conversating back and forth with her, maybe on a weekly basis, to help her to deal with her 19-year-old son that was addicted to drugs. And it took three years of giving her my, my experience that, uh, and I give glory to God that he used me, that after three years, um, he went to, decided to go to rehab. There's so much to say, but I'm not going to, I mean, just going to, you know, in a nutshell, tell you that he went to rehab and now uh, he's clean and he has a, a certificate in uh, HVAC. He's wow. a, you know, and it's, and she always is so thankful that, uh, I was there to help her and, and her family. And also another one here in Chicago, uh, a friend of mine, I'm not going to mention names, but he approached me. He says, I'm not, uh, my relative is an addict uh, into heroin. And uh, I thought about one person and I know, I know you. I've seen you in addiction and I've seen you now. And I said, who better than but you to, to help me? I go, absolutely. And, and I worked with this young man. Of course, in the beginning, uh, he didn't listen. But by me telling the, her, his family what to do, what not to do, it led him to um, a recovery program. And even now, after I think maybe three or four years, he's been clean. I always get a, a text on Christmas or Easter from, from the family, you know, and I love it, and I'm so thankful. I, I get teary when I hear them say, a family member say, I will never forget you, what you've done for us. Honestly, I, I say that it's not me, but it's God using me, and He uses all of us uh, to help others. You know, we can, we can all help each other to be a better person. Now, um, what was the other question? So we can and go your to... employment. How okay. how are you as a former felon able to find work? I always bring God, and and <laughs> there's nothing else better to bring God into every, all my life. When when I was in when I was an addict, I was depressed, so I was collecting the disability. But when I when God broke the bondage of the addiction in a year or two, I got better. I've decided to give up my disability and trust in the Lord that I will find work, even though I had felonies, two felonies. Yeah. And I did. One of our friends, as you know, and you know him, um, he was my uh, payee or the one that he... So I told him, let's go and return, you know, give this up. I don't want it anymore because I want to I wanna get a job. What's interesting, when we went and say, I don't want this, and they were like surprised. The disability check. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, They're like, what do you mean you don't want it? You know, I go, well, I want to I want to try and get a job. I'm better now. So they're like, well, they, they, they didn't understand it. And they they were like people. And then also I had I had a check from, from April uh, last month. I go, here's a check because I don't want to, or, or for that month, I don't want to, yeah. if I get a job, I don't want to. You don't want to cash it. Yeah, I don't yeah. want, yeah. And, and they were like, people come here to get money, not give money. <laughs> And they're like, are you sure? I'm like, 100%. And they even, I believe the government doesn't want to, they want this program to continue. And I don't, I don't know why. They even said, you have one year to change your mind. And when you change your mind, you just come back and say, 
I want to get on it and we'll we'll continue it, you know. But I said I won't. And and in two weeks, I found a job at uh, Restaurant Depot, mm-hmm. where uh, worked there six months. And after that, you know, one of our friends. I, I don't want to mention names because I haven't asked them if I can mention names, and I don't want to do that. Um, also, I believe I want to give glory to God too, not to man. He uses us, but the glory goes to him. He, I asked him to, um, if he, if, if there's an opening at their school that he works at. Your friend, you asked him. Yeah, yeah I asked yeah. him if, if there's a job opening uh, to, uh, you know, consider me or let me know. First thing he says is, no one will, will hire you because of your background, because it's a Catholic school. Yeah. And they do background check, fingerprint. And I go, and this is what I exactly said. I said, you do your job and let God do his job. And to make the story short, there was an opening. I went and applied and I got hired in a prestige high school, private, mm-hmm. Catholic. I can, I can mention the school. I have no problem with it. It's Loyola Academy High School. Uh, Michael Jordan's son went there. It's very, uh, very known. in yeah. And I give glory to God. And uh, I've been there five years. Coming uh, September or November, I'll be five years, and I'm grateful. God, the the doors God opens, no one can close. I'm gonna leave it at that. I'm certainly proud of you, in general. Thank you. Recently, you told me that you're you've been working on a product. Mm. It's a raw food item, mm. but you've been working on a product that will be perhaps featured on a television show. Yes, I won't mention the name. Yes. But it's a possibly sh- it's a show where you make a pitch about your product. Possibly, I want you to introduce the product, the name, yes. and what it is, yes. and what led you down this path of. Well, I was overweight. I, I still am, but I was really overweight. I was at two nine two hundred ninety three pounds. Um, you know, when you stop addiction, you start picking up. You know, you know food is like. Um, a, a substitute, if you will, or something that you... Fills the void, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> so I gained a lot of weight, 293 pounds. And what came to my mind, of course, I didn't like what, how I looked, how I felt. And also, the doctor told me I'm a borderline uh, diabetic. Wow. You have to make a change. Man, right? Because that's another addiction, right? Food. I said to myself, if I overcame drug addiction, all this powerful, why can't I overcome my food addiction, right? So I started eating healthy. And the way I came to about this product, so I wanted to eat something healthy. I, you know, we all have su- sweet tooth. I wanted to eat something that's healthy, that's sweet, but not bad for me. N- no sugar added, no preservatives. And uh, I have to mention... My neighbor, uh, I don't know if I, I should mention names, but my neighbor used to make these these balls. They're like protein balls. Protein yeah. balls, right? But she would put in it everything everything she had. So they were they were good, uh-huh. but I have to say they were fattening. They were not... What were some of the ingredients that she would just kind of put um, the top of your head? You know, cashew butter, uh, seeds, and... But, a lot of it, cashew butter, almond butter, peanut butter, you know, kind of like everything. Um, what's the saying? And the chicken sink or but the chicken uh, kitchen sink. So the idea came from that. I have to give credit where 
credit is due, right? Now I said, okay, I want to make something similar, but not so much stuff in it. Okay. And I didn't want to add sugar. I don't think she did, but I don't want to add sugar. And I want to be different than other companies. And I want to eat something that's healthy, energetic, and delicious. So first you started making these for yourself. For myself. What made you want to scale this out and make this into a business? I'll tell you. So I started, it took me about a, I want to say about a year to come out with the ingredients that I put together and the quantity to make it not so sweet, to be healthy and, and delicious and good for you. It took me about a year to come out with the ingredients and put them together. How was that process like? What, describe that to me. Well, I was, I, was, I was doing a little, you know, adding this, this, this quantity of this product, this, this, you know, adding, mixing them and finding the flavor, the taste of it. Uh, sometimes it would be overpowering. One ingredient would be overpowering all of them or it wouldn't be balanced until I came up with... Because uh, uh, every time you do something, you don't want to repeat it. You want to change it. So you're writing all this down. I Actually, I'm, I'm one of those guys that don't write. I just... It's all in my head. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things. I'm an improviser. So you come up with this recipe. So I come up with this recipe. How many ingredients? Nine. Okay. Nine superfood powerful Can ingredients. Can you go through those ingredients? Yes. So the ingredients are, consist of organic dates, organic figs, dried, raw, and flaxseed, sesame seed, flat, uh, pumpkin seed, and sunflower seed with almonds, walnuts, rolled into unsweetened coconut flakes. Name of the product? Kua Pops. Kua? Kua. It derives from Semitic uh, language. Spell it. Kua. Uh, uh, spelling is Q-U-A. Pops. Kua okay. Pops. Meaning in, in Semitic, even the Hebrew language is, even we in Assyrian is Kuwat, right? In Arabic is Kua. I believe in Hebrew, I don't know if they pronounce it Kua or some similar to oh, that. Yeah. So we, we we couldn't do power balls or power pops because it was taken. So we used um, we had a we have a friend that's into marketing. He he was a marketer for a bunch of companies, and I don't want to I don't know if I can mention the names of the companies, but he told he asked us you know what's how do you say this in your language, and we said so it's actually pending to be our our product. Uh, you know that no one. What's the term they use? Uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be it'll be branded as ours, hmm. and the company name is Lucas Food. And the uh, company name is Lucas Food. Food, but the product is Lucas Lucas Foods okay. because what we want to do is we don't want to just stay. This is the original recipe, but we also in the future, if God's will, we become successful. We want to make other things like maybe beverages, maybe like uh, kombucha. Okay. Or make other uh, flavor superfoods, or make cakes, or but our idea is to stay healthy. Because you were selling, and you were selling this product. So what, let me go back to what. Make, so I started making them and giving them to friends and family. As I would come in with a container and and give them as a gift. You know, like uh, you know, yeah. you come in. There's a gathering. Oh, they'll be like, oh, where did you get these? What store? I'm like, uh, no, I made them. They're like, come on, they're delicious. Finally, and I, I I would hear people say, "Why don't you sell them?" And I'm like, uh, to be honest, uh, I I know it takes a lot of work to get into this selling it and all that. 
the last person that told me to sell them, my sister is very picky. And I took I took some to her. And she's like, where did you get these? I'm like, I made them. She's like, shut up. <laughs> so I said, no, I did. She's like, oh, my goodness. I've tried, you know, this product. Other stores, they're not as good as these. Yeah. She's like, why don't you sell them? And I'm like, uh-oh, that's it. I spoke with a friend of mine. He's my partner. And he's he's been there for me. His name is Fadi. I will mention his name because he's my partner. We're 50-50. He, he also said, why don't we sell it? But he's very good in IT. He's very good in numbers. I said, okay, my part is to make the product. I will be the one in charge in quality control. Okay. And you're in charge of um, marketing it and getting the license. So I got my manager's uh, license, food license, and uh, all the licenses we had to go. So we started in farmer's market. And man... Which farmer's markets? Everywhere. I mean, around... Around uh, Chicago area or Illinois. Okay. Right? Um, We started and it was... It went... Man, it it just... It was wonderful. We would make $400 worth of product. We would sell it in three hours. You know, nowadays people are into health stuff and they don't want sugar added, no preservatives. And it's all raw, powerful ingredients, you know... Iron, I mean, there's iron, there's potassium, there's proteins, gluten-free, low-carb keto. There's no dairy, no gluten, soy-free, plant-based, and it's not baked. It's just raw, and I just put them together. I know how to do it, and they're crunchy, and they're delicious. Yes, there's companies that make it, but they're not as good. There's competitors, but they're not, I'm not worried about it. I'm just, but what happened was because of this COVID, uh, it kind of stopped our production. Tell me about the show. How did you get in touch with them? How did they get in touch with you? The show that we're going to be on? So You my, may be on, right? You're going maybe. through the process. Yes. You made it so, past the first round. Yes, okay. the first interview was phone. So my friend applied, and they go through thousands of shows. You know, they, uh, Thousands of uh, people that apply. We were chosen. I'm grateful for that. And the interview went well. So we're now in the second phase, answering all the questions and putting a video, which we're going to do tomorrow. Sunday mm-hmm. and let's see what happens and if it ha- happens if, if it happens or it doesn't happen um, <laughs> I am thankful for where I'm at now you know I have uh, I have done everything uh, through through faith and, and, and having my faith in Christ and I know that I believe it that the Holy Spirit is with me that's what I want to go back to that's what filled my void. I didn't mention that before. Because when you stop an addiction, there's a void. And the void has to be filled with something. So I believe by trusting in God and being obedient and surrendering to Him, He filled it with the Holy Spirit. Earlier in the interview, your wife gave you an ultimatum. And then over time, to visit your kids, it had to be supervised and you had to pass a test. And that never worked out in your favor. What is your relationship like now with your children? Where are they at in, in, in your life? I can tell you this. I could never change the past. And I'm not here to change the past. But I am building the future. By me leaving them, obviously, and rightly so, our relationship is not as it should have been. There's not much communication there. Because they're grown now, right? But what has happened is they have seen the change in my life. I invited them when I became, when I got sober and and back together, you know, sober-minded and clean. I had a job and I invited them to, so we can meet 
and I went to my daughter's graduation for high school, which was great. I communicated with my son somewhat, but my daughter not as much, and I don't blame her, but I leave everything in God's hands. Uh, I, I'm thankful that they're healthy and they have, you know, a life, but uh, I have to move on. It's, you know, it's, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I think it's important. It's a selfish program. Sobriety is a selfish program. I have to uh, look out for my best interests because if I'm not doing well, how am I going to be good to my kids or to anybody? To others. To others, right? I have to first be selfish to be sober and choose the good things for myself. Even it's biblical to be able to help someone else. The scripture says, fix your house first. Yeah. And then you can help others. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't fix my my plate, my myself or my lifestyle, how am I going to tell you, hey, Peter, go, uh, you shouldn't be doing that, you know? What is one thing that you want to leave the listeners with? There's not only one. There's many things. but uh, I want you to summarize it. I want you to hit your home run. The main thing, and I'm saying it because I am a Christian and... I live by faith, right? And obedience to his word is trust in God and don't think you can do things on your own. You could, but it's different when you do them with God involved in everything of your life. Because if you struggle, knowing that he's there, he is my comforter. He is my rock and my salvation. He is my, he's my everything. Even if I am good or bad, I am always communicating with him. And if you are, watch what you're doing or watch your children or watch what you're doing most of all and analyze yourself. Look at, look at your life and see what you're doing if it's right. You'll find yourself might be addicted to something. And I want to make this point also. Addiction is... When I am addicted to something, that is my God. Because I love it so much that I don't care about nothing else but that. That becomes my God. Yeah. Even though it's a selfish program, but I want to help others. On that note, listeners out there. There are listeners out there that want to get in touch with you. How do they do that? I don't know. Should I give my email or call? Whatever you're comfortable with. If it's an email, I can put it in the show notes. Yeah. Why don't you leave an email? Uh, you know my email, right? Yeah. If it's regarding addiction, if they want to be, you know, they want the word of encouragement, they have questions or whatever. Email. What's your website for your email. product? Oh, my product is uh, kuapops.com. Can you spell it out? Q-U-A-P-O-P-S.com. Excellent. Yes. Adnan? Yes. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, my friend. I am very grateful and thank you for having me here. Absolutely. I'm very excited. I hope I was helpful. Um, and I hope I did uh, good, and I hope this this interview would affect others, would give them hope, uh, because uh, we, we, we all have struggles, but uh, struggle is part of our life. Just invite God into your life, and you'll see beautiful things happen to you, and that's it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you.
بشنشنتي حقليقينا بتنتي قابني يمطينا لخني بيايا قتا نورا طنيا تضابري شمينا شمشنتي كديوم خديا دشتدنن وبها ونرضيا اون بيتي اون بني يوم اتشفق ليل بيقطيا روش مشنتا روشياهم تا روش جوان قاضانا قربنتا ايدا بيدا جرأة درمتا بدلشنتا نهيا قرتا روش مشنتا روشياهم تا روش جوان قاضانا قربنتا ايدا بيدا جرأة درمتا بدلشنتا نهيا قرتا شمشنتي كديوم خديا دشتدنن وبها ونرديا آون بيتي آون بني يوم اتشفق ليل بيقطيا عتدهم تيك ما يلبس خطا بطلع جونه لصدر دمختا هاي بنو شبيم مولاده قكليني هو يا برختا Thanks for listening to this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe and review us wherever you listen to us. You can also help us by spreading the word about the Assyrian Podcast to your family and friends. Thanks and see you all next week.